In the last few years, have you been at all puzzled or even confronted by seeing he slash him, she slash her, or they slash them in a bio of Instagram or LinkedIn or whatever? Has that brought up feelings of perhaps, I don't know, upset, rigidity, even anger in you? It's okay if it has because it happened to me the first time I saw it. Have you found maybe that in recent times that we as a community have kind of ramped up our judgment of people who aren't like us, whether that be with political view or what people wear or maybe who they vote for? I can absolutely say that, yes, I, I have felt such things. About a decade ago when those kind of uh, slashies started appearing in people's bios, I found them uncomfortable for a moment because I was unfamiliar. Yet when I listened to the people who were identifying that way, thankfully, quite quickly, I was able to make sense of it and I was able to kind of patch these new understandings through to where empathy and curiosity and the need for recognition of others' humanity is planted in my brain and um, thankfully I've been able to grow those feelings ever since. Am I perfect in appreciating such things or the sensitivities around them? Absolutely not. Do I try to make progress despite occasionally slipping up? I'd like to think I do. A few months ago, I was asked to chair a panel at the Festival of Dangerous Ideas at, uh, in Newtown in Sydney. The panel included the internationally acclaimed performance artist, author, poet, comedian, and public speaker, Alok Vadmenon. Their astounding book, Beyond the Gender Binary, should be required reading in every school. And I wish it had been available when I was a teenage boy. I told them as such before the show and afterwards when I asked them to come on the podcast, wonderfully, Alok agreed. Alok is a stunning, brilliant, funny, loving human being to listen to. I can't wait for you to get a massive software update into what it is to not only be non-binary, but what we might not realise about how we see the world and other people in the world. For those of us who only appreciate things through the lens of the gender that we have always identified with. It's a great conversation. I can't wait for you to hear it. I learned a lot and I'm really thrilled that I can share it with you. But first we need to play some ads because we need to keep the lights on. And we're back in a moment with Alok Vadmenon. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with Plush Care. PlushCare accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at PlushCare.com slash weight loss. That's PlushCare.com slash weight loss. PlushCare.com slash weight loss. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. 
Hey there, it's Michelle Norris. I'm host of a podcast called Your Mama's Kitchen. When I travel, I'm usually looking for a way to find a taste of home when I'm not at home. And one of the things I love to do when I am at home is entertain. And Airbnb allows me to do that. When I was in California recently, I rented a house that had a great kitchen. And when we were sitting around the table, we're all thinking, we're in someone else's house. Someone could be in all of our homes as well. If you have a home, but you're not always at home, you have an Airbnb. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.com slash host. Anger is the bodyguard to sadness. The reason people default to rage and indignation is because those are easier access points, especially for men, than pain. So, so many men express anger because it's the only emotion that y'all have been allowed to express when actually you don't need to go to anger. You need to go to crying first. That's the human emotion there, right? Mm -hmm. And so when I see all of this anger, all this anger, I'm always asking, what is that hiding? What pain is there? James Baldwin, who is my favorite orator, thinker, writer, said that people cling on so stubbornly to their hatred because without it, they'd have to confront their pain. And that's the lie that is told over and over again. You hate me because you hate yourself. I love you because I love myself. That was author, spoken word performer, comedian, fashion icon, and performance artist, Alok Badmenon. This is Osher Ginsberg, Better Than Yesterday. G'day, welcome. Thanks for joining me. Uh, I'm Osher Ginsberg. This is Osher Ginsberg, Better Than Yesterday. This is a podcast that's here to make your day-to-day better than yesterday. Something you hear on this show and every show will do just that. That's the promise. We've been here since 2013. Uh, Mondays and Wednesdays, I'm with a guest. Fridays, I'm, I'm just here with you alone. And there's th- hundreds of episodes to listen to. Over 10 million downloads can't be wrong. Um, no mean feat for an indie podcast. So, Please slide through through the Black Catalog. This is your first time listening. Uh, thanks for being a part of it. Thanks to everyone that came to the show on Friday night, NTNN, NNN, uh, Nighttime News Network, National Nightly News. We had our, our big debut show at the Factory Theatre. We're doing a couple of Fridays in a row at the Factory Theatre. It was fucking awesome. I was shit scared. I opened the curtain backstage and I could – it was fucking packed, which is no mean feat for an independent, untested comedy show – you know, headed by a person who's not known in the comedy space, launching a brand new comedy show outside of a comedy festival is fucking hard. And I'm just so honored and grateful that people booked babysitters and took time out of their lives to come and share a Friday and early, early doors, 6.45 doors, seven o'clock show. That's early on a Friday. Fucking awesome. And it was super fun. And the goddamn, my cast are hilarious. It was brilliant. The most wonderful thing about looking out at the audience was clearly there was heaps of people there who have never been to a comedy show ever. 
and let alone people who've ever been to a comedy show that involves improvisation because the show is invented as we go, uh, which makes it brilliant because we can only invent it because there's an audience there. And if you're a part of the audience, you're a part of a show that will never, ever, ever, ever happen again. Stand-up comedians do the same routine every night. A band plays the same songs every night, maybe a different order. What we did on Friday will never, ever happen again. And if you were there, you were a part of something really special. And we only could have made it because you were in the room. So thank you. It was beautiful. It was wonderful seeing people who, like really different ages, there were people quite young there. There were people as old as my mother-in-law there. It was glorious. And um, I, I, I can't wait to do it again. We're, we're back the next couple of Fridays. Tickets are on sale now. They're in the show notes. The Melbourne International Comedy Festival dates are on sale right now as well. Uh, get along. We're doing 10 shows in a row in Melbourne. And please come and support it. It's fucking super fun. It's the news of the day. And if the news is getting you down, come and be a part of engaging in the modern world in a way that'll make you feel less insane. And, you know, you never know who's going to show up. Our special guest on Friday was Matty J, who did a fucking amazing job. I've never seen a weather reporter deliver the weather while simultaneously being involved in a wonderful explanation of uh, recent particle physics theories that involve a mirror image universe traveling backwards in time at the same speed as we are traveling forwards in time from the Big Bang. Matty held it together and he did it. It was fucking amazing, but you're only going to see it if you come to the show on Friday. So come and get around it. Tickets are in the show notes. Let me tell you about my guest today. Alok Vad Menon is a performance artist, stand-up comedian, author, advocate, fashion icon, and poet from Texas. Their book, Beyond the Gender Binary, is absolutely game-changing. It's a quick read. You'll get through it in a couple of hours. I did a whole podcast a few months back um, when I first met Alok. I accidentally misgendered them live on stage. To say that they were graceful about it would be an understatement. I'd like to think that I'm a person who tries to see the humanity in others, even those that I don't agree with. Not that I don't agree with Alok, but, you know, say, for example, like some extreme right-wing people, I try to see humanity in them. I do my best. However, I'm still beholden to automatic associations within my brain, thanks to, you know, nearly 50 years of habitual responses. And live on stage in front of a few hundred super woke, you know, Newtown Academic Festival of Dangerous Ideas people, I fucked up. I absolutely fucked up. Alokh gracefully and graciously gave me the space to make the mistake, allowed me to make up for it, and then gave me the space to understand that they could see it was all a part of me learning more about the way that I myself have been conditioned about the world through my experience of being a straight, white, cisgendered man growing up in an extremely heteronormative and male-centric uh, community when I uh, went to school and in my early years, which is ultimately is very limiting for me because it means I can only see a certain tiny little gap of what the world really looks like. And it was a loke that opened my eyes to that. Alok has a huge amount to teach us, not only about gender non-conforming people such as they are, but also about ourselves and how our own anger, our own fear, our own insecurity can amplify and externalise those fears and insecurities, the world becoming a far more frightening place when it's actually it's within ourselves that the fear and anxiety exists. Alok spoke with me from their apartment in New York City, and this conversation is going to change your life. I can't wait for you to hear this magnificent moment with Alok Vadmenon. 
I'm so grateful to speak with you again today, Alok, and I'm so grateful that you um, said yes. It's so lovely to, to speak with you again today. Where in the world are you? I'm in New York in my apartment. And how is New York? I mean, I lived in America for 10 years, and in America, in the suburbs, it's like, on around, it's like, uh, there's bits of this place that are pretty weird, but down my street's okay. But the news that travels outside of America is like, everything's on fire and people are shooting each other all the time. So how is it today? <laughs> yeah, I think we're, we're in a state of grief after what's happened in Colorado Springs here a few days ago, oh, and yeah. then followed by another shooting in Virginia just a couple of days later. And it feels really hopeless because um, it, it feels like the United States of mass shootings at this point. To be honest, like that was part of the reason why I left. I'd already met Audrey and, and Georgia. I'd been living there for about nine years by then. And every week, another unarmed child, 12, 13, 14 years old, going to take their phone out of their pocket was filled full of bullets by cops who then kept their jobs. And about every two weeks, another person walked into a shopping center or a school or a pub and just unloaded an AR-15 that they bought over the counter. Uh, into strangers. And I don't, I don't know. Nothing's getting done about this. <laughs> I couldn't. Yeah. I just couldn't be with it anymore. And in more recent times, as you mentioned, in Colorado Springs, uh, what can only I can't, I can't imagine how it's not a targeted attack on a queer friendly bar. Someone just walked in there and just just murdered people. It was actually done during Trans Awareness Week. <sighs> on the night before Trans Day of Remembrance, which is when we commemorate all the murders of trans and non-binary people, and two trans people were murdered in that shooting on Trans Day of Remembrance. So we have all of the evidence. And you know, what's hard is that we've been trying to get people to realize these so-called trolls online who are festering in this misinformation about the LGBTQ community, allowing this hate speech to proliferate. This has real life consequences. Mm. But because it's so profitable for the algorithm, because it's so profitable for people with power in this country, they just look away. And so I think what I really struggled with when I got the news is I'm like, I'm a queer person who does public events with a lot of LGBTQ people all over this country. And so I called my team and I was like, we need to actually think really differently about security to make sure that people can still feel safe being in public with other queer and trans people, especially in places in the South and the Midwest, yeah. where there's so much of this misinformation right now. It's interesting, it's tragic, but it's also interesting in that we first met maybe three months ago, talking about this exact situation. You know, talking about, we, we met on a, speaking about a panel, speaking on a panel at the Festival of Dangerous Ideas, speaking about the, you know, the, the role of technology and, and disruptive technology in, in rebellion. And there was a conversation about, you know, there's this idea that, oh, online trolls, it's just people in their basements. Don't worry about that. And yet in a month, we've seen someone whose ideas about reality have been distorted so much. They kicked in Nancy Pelosi's front door and went her husband with a hammer. And what happened in, in Colorado Springs? And hopeless is an an emotion that I understand. What could possibly be done about this, Alok? And the sad part is there's so many things that can be done, but they're just not being done because the people who are 
who are proposing them don't have power in society, right? So like one of the first things that we really need is for social media platforms to take more aggressive and principled stances against misinformation and disinformation online. So what's happening right now is that even though trans people are literally being gunned down, murdered, killed, attacked, and assaulted, the predominant narrative is that we are the ones who are stuffing our ideology down other people's throats, who are offensive and dangerous. So it's not only that the reality is being erased, it's that a new reality is being produced that sends people against the very people who are being targeted, right? And we can track that news stories that are fake about trans people go viral on right-wing social media and then manufacture outrage. And this is part of a larger project of taking people's really legitimate fear and anxiety about economic instability. I think in this country and in this world, a lot of people are worried about how are they gonna afford to live? How are they gonna afford to have families? You give them a convenient scapegoat and you allow them to exercise their anger on someone who they don't know, right? The creation of the stranger is how we stabilize the status quo. You take all of the pain and grief and you just pinpoint it, like pin the tail on the donkey on the latest group and you make people chase after them rather than actually working together to create a more just and equitable society. I think the next thing that we really need to do is we need to actually advance, support, and promote LGBTQ artists, thinkers, leaders, um, musicians, because still what's happened is that we're pigeonholed into pride. We're pigeonholed into like one day a, a, a year and people are, are deeply uncomfortable about us speaking about our lives in mainstream forums. I can't tell you how many times I've been told when appearing on TV, you have to dress like this. You have to look this way. It's going to make people uncomfortable. I'm like, okay, why is the why is the agenda still about me changing the way that I look and not society changing its attitudes about how we look? Why is it about me having to pretend to be something I'm not and not about people stop being bigoted? That's what I'm saying principled and public stances. I think the next piece here, the reason I'm saying public so much is I genuinely do believe the majority of Americans, just like I feel about the majority of Australians, are pro-LGBTQ. But the issue is they say that to us in private. They come up to us afterwards and they'll say, you know, my my uncle was gay. I I totally understand what you guys are going through. And I'm like, where is that at the dinner table? Where's that energy when you're showing up in your job? Like, we need you, you all to be as public as we are and your support to make homophobia and transphobia obsolete. I always come back to that line from The Incredibles of like, if everyone's super, no one is. Like, if it's not a big deal, it's not a big deal. It's like, well, whatever. You know, are you a good person? That's what matters. Uh, and, right. and it's interesting what you say about people come up in private, oh, yeah, my uncle. In the words of Chris, Chris Rock, I think Chris Rock, everyone's got, at least everyone's got at least a gay uncle. At least, right? <laughs> you know, it just and now everyone's got a non-binaries like uh, nibbling. Yeah. Like we're, we're out here too. <laughs> <laughs> well, you know, without without a doubt, and it's um, it, it is visible. You can't be what you can't see, and it's it's visibility. Right. Sometimes it needs to be legislated. Sometimes uh, inclusion needs to be legislated uh, as far as broadcast media is concerned, and and sometimes it's like, come on. You know, let's let's pick our game up a bit. You did mention 
when you were processing what happened to you in Melbourne, uh, when you were uh, quite brutally attacked on a tram, when I read about how you talked about it, the amount of empathy and compassion you had for the person that attacked you in public just was gobsmacking, Alok. And it really, it was the most compassionate and 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 selfless way to look at this person as also a victim. And you described that this man who attacked you was also processing grief. And I'm wondering if you could maybe speak about that, this idea that some of the stuff that's coming, people's vociferous objection to anything that isn't the same or like they remember it, is actually them externalizing uh, an anger or, or a grief in themselves. Yeah, totally. You know, powerful people are not people who resort to violence. Powerful people have a quiet and unshakable sense of dignity and security that doesn't require violence. Actually, the most, the people who pretend to be powerful continually tell on themselves. And what discrimination, prejudice, and bigotry is, is telling on yourself that you have not done the internal work to accept yourself. It's telling on yourself that you think that love is conditional, that you grew up in a family that made you feel like you had to act a certain way and be a certain way in order to get access to love. And it's easier to demonize other people than it is to confront the fact that the people who said that they loved you tried their best to destroy you and called it love. You're telling on yourself that you're heartbroken and you're telling yourself that you've not done the work to actually go internal. Powerful people go internal before they go external. They think before they speak. They think before they act. So what I understand is happening right now in all communities, not just my own, is a crisis of mental health. That's where all of this begins for me. Every single political issue begins with mental health. If people felt resolute in themselves, felt okay in themselves, they don't care about what other people are doing with their lives, with their bodies. It's literally, it's, it's, not, it's not of a concern to you. And I know this because I've spent a lot of time in therapy. I've done a lot of healing work. And the more that I learn to accept myself, the less I judge other people. I truly understand that being on earth is really hard and each person is just trying their best and I wish them love and light in their journey. I have no need for other people to become some character in my fiction. And that's what's happening across the board is that I'm made into a villain for other people to feel sacred because they can't feel sacred without making me into a villain. And so I just really found compassion for that man in Australia and for all of these people in my comment sections, for all these people who are deeply upset and believe in misinformation about my community, because I understand that it is easier to believe that trans people are the threat than it is to name that you're heartbroken. Because I think actually there are very few spaces in this culture to be unhappy. And especially if you're a man, you're expected at every single moment to, to be the inspirational force for other people, to be strong for other people, to create the capacity for other people to be well. But no one's asking you how you're doing or how you're processing the grief of losing so much of who you thought you were, the grief of becoming a dad and then looking at your kid and being like, my dad wasn't there. No one speaks about that. And there's so much pain there. 
So rather than judging people for violence, what I want to do is create a world that makes violence obsolete by creating places for people to be honest and vulnerable about what they're actually going through. You, you, you bring up something that is so close to my heart. I, we have two kids, one, uh, the eldest, she's nearly 19, delightful, powerful young woman, and our, our youngest, who's just three and a bit. And he, the way I look at it, it's like, yeah, he's, prob- he's probably straight, but who knows? Uh, he's just figured out how to wink. So he's winking with one eye at the lady daycare teachers and when he's being cheeky, I'm like, meh, okay, <laughs> we'll see how it goes. Whatever he grows into, I will not matter. I will love the man so much. But part of me, nobody wants their son to grow up and punch a person on the tram. Nobody wants their son to grow up and be violent towards their partner, their male partner, their female partner. Nobody wants their little boy at the age of 19 to get locked up because he hit someone or you know, did something horrible to try to protect this gorgeous little child from this trap of masculinity that funnels men into this rigid binary thinking is such a challenge. I'm so, I'm honestly, I'm really quite afraid of it, Alike. I'm afraid of it too. I'm afraid of it too. And I think the only way to, to, to actually confront fears, to name it, we have to say, I'm afraid. Yeah. Like what my friends do is we all say, hey, before we want to have kids, we want to actually do enough therapy because we're afraid that we're going to do the same thing that our parents did to us, to yeah. them. And people always look at us like, what are you talking about? Like you're a different person. Like, no, I think actually you have to be able to name that, that like, hey, this is the reality. We look at the world. Because I think what's happening is that not only are we in the United States of mass shooting, we're in the United States of denial. No one can actually notice what's actually happening in this earth because they're in the story of it. So they were taught and spoon-fed the story that the future was gonna be a given. That's no longer a given for us. We were taught that there would be a certain degree of safety and security, that's not given. In an increasingly vexed and fraught world, all of those narratives are disintegrating. And the only way forward is to be honest that we have no idea what's going on. And I think that's what's really hard for me around the gender conversation is that what I see people basically expressing is, you know, without the gender binary, without there being static definitions of man or woman, how are we going to know how to relate to each other? And then what happens is panic. What I want to say is what a beautiful question. Let's figure it out together. That actually, as an artist, what I've learned in my life is that the unknown is not the zone where the worst things in the world happen. Most of the time, it's actually where we create and craft the most magnificent ideas and ways of relating than ever before. So this is why I feel called as an artist now to actually say, express your fear of the unknown. Express and let me teach you how to get curious with the unknown. Let artists enter the chat and show you the methods that we've developed for centuries to to talk within ourselves when we're writing something and being like, "Mm, I don't really know if this is gonna land well. We have strategies here. Every day when I'm writing, I have to confront the worst shit in myself. I write it down and I'm like, is that in me? And I've learned to not judge it. I think that's a skill that you learn as an artist is you have to recognize that there's an entire universe inside of you. This is a long-winded way of saying, you know, we just had an election here 
And I keep wondering, what if we put the same faith we do in our elected officials and our artists? Why do we keep on looking at policy as a way for a pathway forward and not at poetry? I just, I really feel like artists are actually the architects of the future. We were speaking about parenting before, and I know in in your story, there was an aunt who was quite influential with your parents. We spoke about parents um, passing things on to their kids unknowingly. And I, anyone, anyone listening, if you've ever heard your child, your son, your daughter, your child say something that your grandparents used to say, that is evidence that you have repeated something and they're just mirroring you and the, the patterns just keep repeating. It's called, it's called rippling. That's the, the word for it. And you're absolutely right. And like, it's our responsibility to process that so we can stop some of the bad stuff from passing on the stuff that, oh, that was fine in the forties. Well, it's not now, right. you know, there was an, <laughs> right. there was an aunt in your life who was very influential, uh, around your parents. And, uh, from the way you describe it, did a bit of legwork before you even came along to make sure yeah. that your childhood was actually pretty awesome. Yeah, totally. You know, I feel like I had one of the most precious luxuries in the world that many young people don't have, which is true unconditional love. I had a lesbian aunt who taught me that I could disagree with authoritative figures, who taught me that I could express my unique point of view, who taught me that women were powerful. And so from a young age, I was actually getting this reverse messaging from all the toxicity I was picking up in a small town in Texas. And I had a portal to another possibility. What she taught me is that the status quo is not given, it's produced, and that reality is an ongoing construction project and I too hold the tools. So that when I went to university my first year, I would disagree with my professors. I would ask to go to office hours and say, mm, I, I don't really, this doesn't make sense to me. Can you re-explain it? And my peers would look at me like, how, do you, how can you do that? Like, they're an expert. And I was like, what does that mean? They have to continually prove their expertise. That I was taught to question power. And now that she died a few months ago, you see with so much more clarity, oh, <laughs> that's where that came from, you know? I think when people are alive, you kind of are spending your entire MO being like, we're different people, we're, I'm charting my own path. And then death gives us clarity. I mean, Kafka says, life has meaning because we die. And I, I think about that quote a lot because life would not have any meaning unless we didn't know that it had an expiration date. And there's something extremely clarifying about death. And what my aunt's death really clarified for me is that I've spent so much of my life speaking about the ways that I was marginalized, but also I need to become bilingual in the ways in which I was loved, that actually I had this invisible foundational power as a young person, which is the ability to speak my mind. And when I see so many of these quote unquote trolls in my comment sections, it's an indication to me, I think these people were punished for speaking their mind. I think these people actually were brutalized for having an opinion that went different from their families. And when you're a young person, your parents are God figures. And when I had someone saying, you get to question your God figure, that is so loving and beautiful and powerful. And so I've been sort of saying on tour, I wanna be the auntie that she was to me to the world, and I'm gonna bring that kind of love that actually encourages disagreement, that actually says, outgrow me, because I think that the love most people grow up with is, let's make a mini me, let's like create a 2.0, or let's make you 
fulfill all the unrealized dreams that I had in my life. That's the one. Yikes. That's the one that pushes kids into football they don't want to play and dance classes they don't want to do. That's the, that's the, I don't want to learn Krav Maga, dad. The idea of questioning your professor at Stanford, I'm of a generation, I'm 48 when we're recording this, I'm of a generation that it's disrespectful to question a professor. Talk to us about, if you will, questioning authority doesn't mean I don't have disrespect for authority, does it? I actually think questioning is the ultimate and highest form of respect. That's why I'm I'm proud to be an American because there's a tradition of dissent within this country that actually the Americans I'm most proud of are civil rights activists and feminist activists and gay activists who said, I'm critiquing this country precisely because I love it. This idea that love is beyond reproach or love is beyond critique is actually power. That's not love. True love is communicative, is porous, is interdependent, is dialoguing. And that's what I firmly believe in the world is I want people to question me. My ideas are not beyond the integrity of critique. In fact, if I was to say that I had created the perfect solution for the world, I would hope that people would come in and say, what what greed, what avarice, what hubris makes you think that? Actually, critique is a form of collaboration. And that's why I think about what poet Amanda Gorman says when she calls America a rough draft. And I would elaborate to say our life is a rough draft, which means that we're continually revising it. And as a poet, an editor is so helpful to me because I might have an idea and no one else understands that. But when you have a good editor, be like, hey, I see what you're trying to do here. I think it could be done a little bit better. And it makes a stronger finished product. So that's what I'm saying when I'm saying challenge authority. You challenge it because you love it and because you're committed to something being magnificent, not just the status quo. We have bumper stickers here in Australia that um, unfortunately, or fortunately, they say Australia, love it or leave. And the idea (laughs) that when I, when our, we have, as I'm sure you are aware, you've come to this country many times, um, a, a horrific history with our First Nations people. Sovereignty was never ceded. We get up in arms about Russia invading Ukraine, and yet we don't say anything about the, the lands or the people that we live on right now that would never, you know, not, not nothing happened. It was just, we'll take your land and we'll destroy your culture. It was not great. And the idea that one could question that publicly is like, well, if you don't love Australia, fuck off. Like, no, I'm questioning it because I love Australia. I'm questioning the way we do things because I I love this country with all of my heart. And I honestly, I would give my life for this country. That is how much I love this place. And because of that, I'm like, I'm like, but not everything is this way for me, for everybody. I want everyone in my country to feel this way. This idea that if you question the ultimate story, the ultimate story for me is this the state, the nation state. It's just a story. Mm-hmm. It's, when mm-hmm. you fly over it, you can't see a line. You look at it from mm-hmm. space, there's no borders. It's a st- Everything's a story. But if you question that somehow, you are denying your, you know, you, you then have to leave. It's beyond question. And that. That's a tricky trap, isn't it? Yeah. It's so insecure. Like, once again, when I'm trying to say that powerful people are not the people who we might think of as powerful, we have to recognize that often there's a huge insecurity that underlies every supremacy. 
Because behind white supremacy, behind male supremacy, is a perpetual fear of losing it. So in order to in order to stave off that fear, there's an overcompensation that happens. You cannot question anything. Actually, <laughs> we should. And if your ideology is so fragile that it cannot be questioned or interrogated, and if that's seen as a form of heresy, that's a real problem, right? I encounter this all the time with when people say, well, biologically, there's just males and females. Facts are not feelings, which I've always thought to be so funny because the truth is feelings are biological. Feelings actually are perceived by our nervous system, which is part of our biology, and the mind-body distinction is false. So actually stress, psychological stress, can manifest as physical illness in the body. So you're already, once again, telling on yourself, you're repeating a mantra that you've been told without actually understanding what biology actually is or what science actually is. You're committed to the story of science and the story of biology as a way to justify the status quo. So what I often have to do is say, who taught you that being critical is something bad? And then trace that wound. And it always goes back to a family system. <laughs> That's what I'm always trying to get people to realize is yeah. it's very simple here. We can make it about big words, big ideologies, big languages, but it actually boils down to when you feel critiqued, you're five years old. And it's some person that you look up to telling you that you're not good enough. And that's what's being activated now. That actually that triggered self exists within you now and it's being activated and I can see it. What is that? I, I've always thought this was a parallel trigger of a gun and trigger of an emotion and trigger of a neuron. Those things are the throughway. What causes people to get to the point where they commit murder is a psychological trigger that comes from a deeper place. And so that's where we have to really begin this difficult and arduous work of humanizing people. What I do when I see Donald Trump tweeting is I imagine his trauma as a kid. I imagine how difficult it must have been for him to feel love, how he felt like he had to monopolize the entire world like it was one big board game in order to get his dad to notice him. And I'm like, oh my gosh, that's awful. I feel so bad for you. You're a wounded child. That That is a fantastic thing to keep with you. And it's, for me, I, I would love to think that more often than have reacting to the stuff I read about that person. And then now I've got this awful feeling in my body. It's like, ah, oh, now I've got it all over me, buddy. You know, and I sometimes if I'm not careful, I can carry that through my day and it's horrible, <laughs> you know, but to instead have this compassion and this empathy for this man who, if you do know his story, exactly. I don't think it's a stretch. Uh, what you've just described is pretty much what happened. Uh, and yet so many people find affinity with this person, but he's, he's not alone. That person exists in many communities in our, in our world, this kind of strong man, uh, othering white guy, because it's. It's easy to communicate in a soundbite, isn't it? It's easy to go, yeah. you know, in five, uh, Australia's lo Australians love a three-word slogan, stop the boats, build the wall. <laughs> it's easy to make a three-word thing. It fits on a bumper sticker, easy right. to chant. They love it. But life isn't easy. That's not really. And three words, nice. <laughs> 
Okay, yeah, call me there. But uh, that's what's excited to have this conversation with you is I, I was thinking about how you had read my book and you felt like it resonated with your experiences. And, and what I really am frustrated by right now is that a lot of this work around gender is just seen as like a minority interest for a small group of non-binary people. Gender's working for everyone else. And I'm like, hey, everyone, this is because we've foregrounded an inaccurate understanding of privilege that doesn't take into account trauma and emotion. Even people with structural power in society still experience loneliness and trauma. And in fact, even if you're a straight, cis, white dude in this culture, you still feel like you're never enough because you have to aspire towards these impossible norms that were created to make you feel like you were not enough so that you would overcompensate with violence that, so you've been duped as well into thinking that there's going to be a finish line, but there's no finish line to toxic masculinity. You can literally dominate the entire world and still not get the security that you seek. And so what I've really tried to introduce in my own work is a different talking point that doesn't say you have privilege, I don't. That doesn't say you're the oppressor, I'm the victim. But that actually says all of us are oppressed by these made up stories and it looks different for each one of us. It might look like you not being able to cry and it looks like me getting assaulted on a train, but the origin of that is the same. When I read your book, Beyond the Gender Binary, which is, I, I, what I the first thing I said to you was like, I, I wish that was like required reading in schools. I learned what I learned about the world through the lens of the world that I lived in. Really the only women in my life was my mom and my accounting teacher. I went to an all boys school, Christian Brothers, which there's barely any of them that exist anymore, perhaps because of some things that have happened. And uh, Nick Cody, a comedian, mate of mine, he says, um, you know, there's a problem with your school when the, I'm just going to make up a name now when, you know, the, the, the brother Johnson building and you go back to school and now it's block D. You're like, ooh, <laughs> some, some shit went down. <laughs> Something bad has <laughs> happened there. Uh, there was a bit of that. And... I got spat out of that at 17. And as far as I was concerned, that was the world. And it was a reflection of this homophobic, misogynist way of looking at things. And then I walked out basically, and I got my first kind of job in the world. And I realized, wow, people are angry at me a lot. That person's really upset at me. What's, what's going on? Yeah, don't you know? Blah, 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 blah. This shit would come out of my mouth a lot. And boy, did I have to do some learning. And it was hard. It's hard to talk about. It's hard to admit that that's what happened. But to know that, you know, I, I graduated in a class of 186, right? So this is 185 other people. And there were at least six of them have come out since then. Probably way more. <laughs> like... And, and I think about the other guys I went to school with, like, God damn, like every day going to school, living with that as a teenager. And then like, there I am now I'm in the world, in the workplace, just being this fuckwit. And I, thankfully, some very kind people took me by the hand and went, mate, that's not how, that's not okay. Uh, <laughs> I just wish that your book was more available and that kind of thinking was more available because it was just such a shitty way of looking at the world. But that's what I was, I, that's all I believed at the time. And it was it's really it hard. It hurts you too. That's where I, I feel like, you know, I, I'm, I'm really excited because I was invited to give my first church sermon on Sunday for Trans Day Remembrance. 
And I was like, yeah, I've been meaning to do this forever. And so I stayed up all night writing this speech. And, and one of the things that I say in the sermon is I'm supposed to come up here and detail the ways that transphobia has impacted my life. But I actually want to flip the script. I don't need to prove my humanity to you. You need to prove your humanity to me. How has transphobia impacted your life? How has it eclipsed your sense of possibility? How have these ideas of gender made you into a meager expression of yourself when you deserve magnificence? And what was so powerful about writing that for me is that I, I, I just, I no longer want to indulge the lie. The lie that's told for hundreds of years, there's a PR strategy that says that those of us who disobey gender norms are freaks, that we're people who are going to be left alone. I mean, that's the first thing that people will comment. Your dad must have really hated you or something, or like, you're the byproduct of bad parenting. I'm sitting there like, actually, I have the most stable, beautiful, emotional relationships with everyone in my family, with everyone in my life, because they're rooted in honesty and truth. That's what makes good relationships, honesty and truth, not roles. Because what roles do is we default into, well, I as a dad, I as a husband. No, what about you as a person? <laughs> like interrupt the role that you're supposed to be and become a person. That's what transphobia does to cis people is it makes cis people have to pretend to be man and woman when in fact you're a broken heart five-year-old kid who can't like build muscle mass and feels insecure. <laughs> like be <laughs> honest about your own biography and it restricts us and depletes us of individuality. Yeah. And that's what gender norms do is they lump billions of different people and tell y'all that you all have to be the same and you don't. I love that just the tiniest little bit of Texan just came out of you just then. You used the word y'all <laughs> in context and I'm just thrilled that it happened. <laughs> what I, think I reckon people get so confused when I tell them I'm from the small town in Texas, but it can come out whenever it needs to. We've got a lot of commonalities over there with the Australian audience. When I was in America, <laughs> I looked around one day and I realized all my, all my best mates are from Texas. And there you it, go. It, just something about, something about Texas. It, it, we, it, we were the ones who would have on our bumper stickers, if you, if you don't like it here, leave oh, too. Yeah. So oh, yeah, we yeah. have that in common. But there was just something <laughs> about Texans. Just I just adored them. The way they looked at the world is a very, very similar to, to Australia. And it's an amazing place. Oh, my God. It's an incredible place to go. When, when you talk about, you know, what is the gender binary doing? Or what is, you know, homophobia and transphobia doing to you? You know, I think about, you know, certainly – you don't even have to look back very far. It probably even happens right now. How many grown adults, uh, parents, mothers, and fathers lost a child while they were still alive because in their brain they were like, oh, if you're not cis, not heteronormative, you, I'm kicking you out and I'm never talking to you again. And at the age right. of 18, they, their kids could have lived long and fruitful lives and they've never known them. And like, then carrying that heartbreak because somewhere someone said, if your son or daughter is anywhere outside of these lines, they can't live in your house. You cannot be in contact with them. It's over. Oh my God. Can you imagine carrying that? And there's probably men and women alive right now who still carry that. It's yeah. horrible to think about. Do you think as a community, we're kind of getting better at it's rec recognizing the way children are as they are and allowing them mm. to be as they came out, no pun intended. I think it's the best and the worst of both worlds. Yeah. So on the one hand, people who care, yes, are getting better and supportive and amazing. And I, I have the opportunity to connect with parents of trans kids all over and they're just mm. 
that heals me to meet parents who come to my shows and say, I'm trying to be a better parent for my kid. Thank you. I'm trying to learn as much information as possible so I can show up. I mean, I never thought that I would ever see any parents say that in public, connect with other parents of trans kids, say, hey, we don't want to process our fears with our kids. So we're going to be in conversation with each other and we're going to skill share on how to talk to talk to schools or how to have difficult conversations with family members like that makes me so happy. And in the U.S. right now, most of the anti-trans laws are targeting trans young people and they're being pushed by parents who are basically saying these kids are making it up. They want, they want to be a dinosaur one day. How can we trust them? So therefore, we should ban trans kids from sports, which actually, like, they're like 12. So all that money that you could have spent, you know, coming up with a comprehensive plan around housing evictions is now being spent to ban 12 trans intramural sports adolescent athletes. Thank you so much. And then two, they're saying we have to ban trans kids from using the facilities of their choice at schools. We need to ban curriculum about LGBTQ content in schools. My own book banned in many public schools across this country that we need to actually punish and penalize teachers for having rainbow flags in their classroom or any support of the LGBTQ community. So we're seeing the worst of the worst there as well. And so what I find to be so painful is knowing that there's so many queer and trans kids who just happen to be born into the wrong families and that that will ruin them for the rest of their lives. Because as a reoccurring theme in this conversation, childhood trauma manifests as trauma for the rest of your life because your brain is still developing. And so it just makes me so sad that we haven't developed a better way to, to do this, where it's just like you just happen to be born in a family that doesn't see your specialness and... And then for the rest of your life, you're going to have to carry that baggage of having to deal with other people's unprocessed grief and shame. It's just awful. And I just feel like I grew up being bullied by my peers, but not by my politicians. And what we've seen over the past few years is a bunch of extremely wealthy adults bully trans kids. And that's just unforgivable to me. I mean, I was just at a rally in Texas where the governor has defined supporting your trans kid is a form of child abuse. And so we had a rally outside of the governor's mansion saying this is not okay. And what was so cool about the organizers there in Texas is they knew they didn't want to expose the kids to any harm or violence. So they just had audio recordings uh, that we'd play on the microphones. And it's these 12, 13 year old kids being like, I just want to go to school. I just want to like play. I want to hang out with my friends. And I have to be here begging for my humanity. I'm afraid of being taken away from my own parents because that's another law that they're trying to do is to separate trans kids from their parents under the premise of child abuse. And who showed up to the march but conservative counter-protesters and an armed tank, an actual armed tank at a rally in support of love and support for families of trans kids. That's where we're at in this country. Okay, so you could... It's legal to drive around an armed tank as a civilian? Welcome to Texas. Texas. (laughs) Part of me just then flashed in my head, not many, I don't know how many people listening will know this, but uh, it's it's quite a famous story. The whole Second Amendment gun rights thing came out of the Black Panther Party. Uh, Essentially, oh no, it's in the amendment, it's in the Second Amendment. I've got a right to bear arms. It was, you know, a a bunch of, uh, you know, African-American people standing there with shotguns defending their community from the cops who had been uh, essentially killing their their brothers and their children. 
And um, they're like, no, nope, you look it up. It's in the Constitution. It's my right to hold this weapon. And so it was the, the Black Panther Party that first started doing that. And then, and then now it's kind of flipped. And part of me was just like, well, what if a rainbow tank showed up? You know, <laughs> what if it was a loke standing there with an AR-15? But then that's like, well, what the fuck is that? Except then everyone's shooting each other in pieces. Shoots love poems, yeah. And the gun shoots love poems and it teaches people about peace and it yeah. shows that violence is not ever the solution. Yeah. You know, it's just like, yeah. I, I that's what I'm saying about we have to meet it with a different frequency. Yeah. We have to meet it with a different frequency. Yeah. We have to actually humanize the people who dehumanize yeah. us. We have to choose love and compassion, even when it's hard, because because that's the only way that we win. I'm not saying any of this because I want to be the better person. It's because I've seen it work in my own life. Look, yeah. I grew up extremely homophobic and transphobic to myself. Wow. That's with having a lesbian aunt. That's with having supportive families. I grew up in a public school in Texas being told that gay people should be put on an island separate from everyone else where they'd all contract AIDS and then we'd have a, a gladiator style battle so they could murder themselves off. That was just casual conversation with my peers. So of course I imbibe that. So when I figured out that I was queer, I thought that this world would be better off if I deleted myself, if I muzzled and muted myself. And so I went from that self-hatred to this. How did I get there? Not through shaming myself, not through saying that I was a horrible person, but through loving myself, saying, of course you believe these things because you were adjacent to so much toxicity. The way that we change people's minds is that we love them more than they could hate us. When you said this, I'm not going to lie, Alok, a, a little tear came into my eye. Uh, I, I want to describe how I first met you, what you were wearing. Uh, it was, I don't know, probably three meters long uh, behind you. There was this train and it was just this beautiful gold embroidered I don't know if it was a half toga. I don't know what it was. It was off the it shoulder. Was a curtain. It was a curtain. Fuck you. <laughs> It was a fucking I was wearing curtain. drapery from a curtain. Yes. You literally walked like I was like, your mother's draped. Fuck it is. Fucking oath it is. And I'm going to stand here on stage in front of hundreds of people. And you just strode on stage, just wearing this incredible thing. And I looked at you and it I was literally like, was like covering the entire stage, like a, like a carpet on the entire stage. I like, you looked so fucking fabulous. And I think about it and I was like, I, I have never felt that comfortable in myself to stand on stage wearing something like that and feeling, and I just was like, oh, damn, man, I, I was so jealous in that, in that moment. I'm, I, I, it's not envy. It's like, what, what have I missed out on, like, by not allowing myself to be as expressive about who I am uh, in that point? Uh, and the way that I see myself or I, and I'm just like, God, oh, please let more people see you being completely comfortable expressing you are the way you are visually. It is, it, it's, it's so pure and so authentic. And I was just, and I so love that it was fun. actually a curtain, man. It's so much fun. It's so much fun. When, when I spoke to the designer and they're like, Hey, so we have like a curtain. I was like, this is so fun. Let's do it. I just literally, uh, this is the thing. Part of the childhood trauma thing is that we learn that play is immature <laughs> and that we have to grow up and become super serious. And it's like, in order to be taken seriously, you have to look a certain way and act a certain way and speak. I yeah. say, absolutely not. Have fun all the time. Once again, life has meaning because we die. Are you going to be sitting there at the end of your life with remorse and regret that there were things that you could have said, loves that you could have had, colors you could have worn, outfits, you could have decorated this beautiful planet with, but you didn't because 
what? None of that makes sense when you're dying and you look at the clarity of your world, you're like, really? I cared what people would thought. What matters at the end of your life is what you thought about yourself. And so that's what I remind myself every day. I don't really care if people like what I'm wearing. I don't do this for them. I do it to express my creativity and to have fun. I love that it was, because I looked down at my wife, she was in the front row and she's just like, a jaw was on the floor and it was all we talked about. I'm did you see what they were wearing? Fuck, it was great. You Now, sorry, to, to backtrack you for just a second here, because uh, you did mention something that uh, I, I would like, I would like you to speak about. You you talked about deleting yourself and uh, muting yourself. And the extreme, most extreme form of that is making that a permanent situation. And uh, non-binary, uh, non uh, non-gender binary people or, or non-binary people are at such colossally exaggerated risk of self-harm or dying by self-harm. It is, it's frightful once you see uh, a, as you go, well, that's just how they came out. This is just who this person is. Uh, that's how they arrived on this earth. And B, oh my goodness, they're now at, at risk. Um, there's a, a, a mate of mine, uh, let's call him John. Uh, hey, John, I haven't seen you in a while. I've been away. Um, how's the boys? And he goes, oh, I didn't tell you. Oh, uh, you didn't tell me what? We haven't spoken for about, about, about it. We go, yeah. So uh, I now have one son and one daughter. Okay. Mm-hmm. And uh, the the younger child I'd known for a couple of years, and this this John said to me, um, it just straight away he just quoted the facts. He goes, "Facts are that trans kids have this much higher risk of of uh, self harm, but also dying by self harm, and I'd rather have an alive child. So whatever this person needs is what they're going to get. And in my in a blink." My eyes were like, well, of course. But not everyone sees it that way, do they? Yeah, and, and they, they have the audacity, you know. In the U.S., the statistic used to be it's changed that 41% of trans and non-binary people had attempted suicide. And so people would comment on photos of me and say 41%. Oh, my God. Like, so they'll actually goad and bully us, and it goes under the idea that they think that we're dying by suicide because we're disorderly. And we are defective, not that it's because we're discriminated against, not because we can't exist in public without people laughing at us or throwing trash at us. Imagine the kind of strength it takes for gender nonconforming people to exist in public space as we do, knowing that thousands of people are going to be displacing their own self-hatred onto us, telling us that this world would be better without us. I have so much sympathy with all trans and gender nonconforming people who are struggling with thoughts of self-harm or practices of self-harm because it makes sense when that's what the world is telling you. It's not because we have a disorder, it's because we're discriminated against. But what I've learned in my life is that I can't seek validation at all from society. It has to be within. And so what I've learned how to do now is just walking down the streets of New York, people of course are gonna say things about me. I don't care. (laughs) I genuinely don't care because the truth is what's the alternative? The alternative is that I, I tone it down and then I'm unhappy because then I have to live a lie and I'd rather live in my truth. And there's nothing more beautiful to me about my truth. It's taken me a long time to get here, but that's what I'm saying. Transformation is possible. How could I go from not allowing any video or audio recordings of myself because I was afraid that my voice was too feminine to appearing in a couture curtain on a stage in front of hundreds of people and not even... 
not even blinking. And I mean, yes, blinking because I wanted to show off my eyelashes. But oh, that's not even. Not talk. There was really. a lot of glitter going on. It was fuck. It was good. Thank you. <laughs> the story of that is a story of hope. Yeah, it's a story of redemption and it's a story of transformation. And that's why trans people are being targeted because the powers that be want to teach you that transformation is impossible. Yeah. That the status quo has to be permanent. And it's not true. We can live many lives in this one. But the way that we move, the way that we go to our Super Saiyan status, the way that we upgrade, the way that we ascend, is we name our pain. And that's the missing thing. When people are stagnant or feeling in a rut, there's a pain there that's begging to be witnessed. And it looks like crying and metamorphosis. It looks like grief and then healing. That's what it means to be alive, is to, I think people want a pain-free, insulated life. They want things to be easy, the slogans, the genders, the roles, but that's not how we live our lives. Our lives are gonna be fraught, complicated, intense. There's gonna be so much leaf, grief and loss because the people that we love die. And I return to that over and yeah. over again. I've lost so many people that I've loved and every time it feels like the first time. Nothing prepares you for it. No amount of prep work prepares you <laughs> for someone that you love dying. But then you sit there in that grief and you have such razor sharp clarity. I need to live my life in a way that's a memorial to this person that I love. I need to live my life in a way so that if I can't see the person that I love tomorrow for some reason, I'm not gonna have remorse or regret. That's what I'm doing with my own life. I don't wanna die as not myself. That thought destabilizes me. And so I remind myself, even if they were to take me down, bitch, I'm fabulous and I'm going down as me. And that's important for me. A moment away from Alok to uh, remind you that we are back at the Factory Theatre this Friday night. Uh, and next Friday and the Friday after that, tickets are on sale in the show notes. You can find the tickets. They're only 20 bucks for the Sydney shows. Melbourne shows are a little more expensive because I've got to fly there and pay for an apartment for you know two weeks. Good on you for being brave and coming to a comedy show that you have no idea what it's about. Good on you for being brave. And for those of you who did come and had never been before, fuck yeah. Amazing. I'm stoked that you made it. We're going to do it again on Friday. If you came last week, come again because the show will be completely different. There'll be nothing. This I'll be the same, but nothing else will be the same. You'll never experience the same show twice. Uh, so if you can make it to Melbourne, come to more than one show. Uh, the Melbourne shows are on sale right now. We're at the Malt House Theatre from the 30th of March, uh, the day after my birthday. I think I'm having my birthday in Melbourne. And it's going to be fucking super fun. Tickets are on sale right now. Come along on Friday. If you are going to come along, let me know. If you really want to come, if you really, really want to come, but you can't afford it, and I understand that, cost of living's fucked right now, drop me a line, send me an email, jump in the Discord, let me know, and I'll see what I can do, okay? Because I wouldn't want you to miss out. Tickets are in the show notes. We're going to be back with the Lope Bad Men in just a moment. Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is Plush Care. Plush Care is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. 
Hey there, it's Michelle Norris. I'm host of a podcast called Your Mama's Kitchen. When I travel, I'm usually looking for a way to find a taste of home when I'm not at home. And one of the things I love to do when I am at home is entertain. And Airbnb allows me to do that. When I was in California recently, I rented a house that had a great kitchen. And when we were sitting around the table, we're all thinking, we're in someone else's house. Someone could be in all of our homes as well. If you have a home, but you're not always at home, you have an Airbnb. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.com slash host. The idea that a, a grown adult who pays taxes, has a mortgage, could feel so threatened in their life by a six-year-old child called John who leaves grade two, goes on vacation, goes on summer holidays, and then comes back in grade three as Jenny wearing a different uniform, that a grown person can be so terrified that they would, you know, want, wish death upon that child. You you talked earlier about questioning yourself and questioning what comes from, like, that you're really going to have to take a long, hard look at the mirror. That's a confronting thing to understand that you wish destruction of this child because it makes you feel weird inside. That's going to be hard for that person to even get towards. What's a step that someone can take to to even begin to get there? Mm. Therapy yeah. is the first step for all. And then the next step, is to really understand that anger is the bodyguard to sadness. The reason people default to rage and indignation is because those are easier access points, especially for men, than pain. So, so many men express anger because it's the only emotion that y'all have been allowed to express, when actually you don't need to go to anger, you need to go to crying first. That's the human emotion there, right? Mm -hmm. And so when I see all of this anger, all this anger, I'm always asking, what is that hiding? What pain is there? James Baldwin, who is my favorite orator, thinker, writer, said that people cling on so stubbornly to their hatred because without it, they'd have to confront their pain. And that's the lie that is told over and over again. You hate me because you hate yourself. Mm -hmm. I love you because I love myself. That is, it's ex, it's extraordinary to say it in two sentences, Alok, yet to even get to the point where you can accept that idea and then see if you can apply it to yourself is very hard. Even just to get to the idea of like, oh, my feelings aren't facts or what well, I can change my mind. I can feel differently about something. Oh, just because I feel angry about that doesn't mean that that's a bad thing. Like... For some, some people go through their whole life never questioning um, their initial thoughts. And that's, yeah, but, but then all you're doing is just, you're just reacting. You never, cho- you have no free will. There's, you've got no choice. You've got no opportunity, no choice at all to ever be different. And then you're stuck in pain and anger, which is no fun. And then you get ulcerated colitis and all kinds of horrible stress-related diseases that you spoke about earlier because you're carrying this pain. And how much fucking time are you wasting being upset at a stranger's child? Wasted time. And that's what I really want to say. I mean, the theme of this podcast is you're telling on yourself. You mean to tell me that you could spend your day having picnics, learning new hobbies, picking up new languages, beating video game quests, and you're going to spend hours 
sending negative comments to people you don't even know, what that shows me is you don't think that your life is worth levity. You were taught that you have to be in fight or flight in order to be. And when actually offered freedom, rest, leisure, equality, you will sabotage all efforts because you don't know who you are when you're at peace with yourself. And that shows that there's healing to be done there. And that's why every time people come at me, I say, who hurt you? And they're so un- they're so floored and destabilized by that because I, I won't even indulge it. This has nothing to do with me. Your projection is not my reality. I'm a mirror to some part of yourself that you have not integrated and accepted because some of my best friends are white cis straight dudes and they're totally comfortable with me because they've done that work to choose those identities for themselves, to choose being a man for themselves. That's what I'm fighting for. You get to be a man, but make that choice yourself. You're not a man because your parents told you you should be, because the doctors told you you should be. You're a man because you are defining what man means to you, not that there's some guidebook that's been passed down across generations on how to be something that you should be, not actually checking on what you want to be. Alec, tell me how this approach of having empathy for a person who's writing horrible things online, tell me how this approach differs to essentially cancelling and going, okay, that's it. You have to then be deplatformed where you're not allowed to ever have a social media account ever again. Yeah, I just believe in redemption. I, I, I've changed so much in my life. I'm constantly changing. I mean, through this conversation, I'm changed. That's what it means to be a, a lucid person is that we're constantly growing and expanding. And so I believe in everyone's capacity to transform. That does not mean that I don't think that there should be repercussions when people breach breach, uh, social protocol. Mm -hmm. But I do believe we have to believe that people are capable of transformation. It's easier to not. It's easier to say they're the good guys, they're the bad guys, they're the villain. But what I want everyone to understand is being non-binary is not just about a refusal of man-woman. It's a refusal of all binaries that are holding us back, including good and bad. Within each of us is evil. Within each of us is the system that we're critiquing. Within each of us is the need to be humbled and corrected. That's where I I activate from compassion is I don't believe that there are bad people and that there are good people. I believe that there are human beings born into a world shrouded with trauma where we have no literacy about trauma, where the first time we have PTSD diagnosis is after World War II, or sorry, after Vietnam, even later, with army vets, and now we're now slowly developing the research to show how trauma fundamentally shapes our physiology. I have so much compassion because we don't know how these childhood dynamics map out for the rest of our lives. I get frustrated sometimes because people see compassion as just sort of like Dalai Lama level spiritual evolution, when in fact, it's just like Rote's neurological science. Like it's just like basic, like this is being found in all of the contemporary psychiatric and neurological research, which is that trauma reshapes our brains and that actually our brains don't differentiate between physical and verbal violence that actually our brains perceive themselves as under attack and that activates every single nervous system, which activates all of the parts of our body, which fundamentally shifts the way of our lives. We keep on mistaking people's trauma coping strategies as personalities. And so what I try to do is not indulge in the bluff. Who you are is a trauma coping strategy. Now give birth to yourself again. 
Healing is who do I want to become? How do I reparent myself so that I live with dignity so that when I die, I say, hey, death, good to see you. I've been waiting for this. Glad you're here. Let's do this. Instead of sitting there or lying there with so much remorse and regret, yikes, every time I'm feeling like, oh my gosh, why do I do this alone? I know that I am going to have the best death ever. I'm literally (laughs) going to be so happy because I've lived the fullest life ever. I don't live with regret. I say the things that I want to say. I wear the things I want to wear. I love the people I want to love. I'm having an amazing time. And and those are those are what gender nonconforming people across the, the generations have done. I'm getting ahead of myself, but one of my favorite mentors is Sylvester, the queen of disco, who has a song called You Make Me Feel Mighty Real. Mighty people might be- real. Great song. So Sylvester died of HIV and AIDS. And one of Sylvester's last appearances, they were in a hospital gown at the Gay Liberation Parade in San Francisco with their body decaying. And people were like, Sylvester, what are you doing? And she was cracking jokes. She was cracking jokes and she makes this joke towards the end of her life where she says, people keep on saying that I'm dead, but you're only going to know that I'm dead when I call you and tell you myself. (laughs) The ability to joke during mass death, to have so much presence and self-acceptance, to reject other people's shunning of disability and illness at the peak of the AIDS crisis, where people think that you are disposable as a black, gay, sick person, that is the kind of power that is capable once you accept vulnerability, truth, and self-acceptance in your life. History recalls that the first punch thrown at the Stonewall riot was a a trans woman. And at Colorado Springs, there was a trans woman who helped get this mass shooter to stop shooting people who disarmed him and worked in conjunction with a straight army vet. And I think that that is such a powerful story that the very communities that y'all are saying are dangerous are the people who demilitarize this guy and save dozens of innocent people's lives. Exactly. Alok, I'm just so glad you exist in the world. All right. I know that you don't need me to tell you that because you clearly know it. Uh, however, in, in reading your book and then meeting you and, and speaking with you on stage and speaking with you now, I'm just so grateful that you exist. You, you can't be what you can't see. All right. And there's children that have yet to be born that will look at the work that you have done and gone, ah, okay, well, I can do that. And parents that look at you and go, ah, okay, we can do that. And for me, that's that's an incredible gift that you've already given. And I'm also really glad that you think about death a lot. I think about death every day. I think it's extraordinarily important. Memento Mori is really, really important. We have to accept mm-hmm. that death is coming for every one of us. We don't know when. Could be today. So how are you going to say goodbye to the people you love today? How are you going to hang up the mm-hmm. phone? Are you going to sit there and enjoy that sandwich? Because it honestly could be your last. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and that makes everything amazing. Mm-hmm. We have to live as if everything has the capacity to amaze us. And this is something that actually young people and old people both teach us. You know, my sister just gave birth, so I've been spending spending a lot of times around this baby. And this baby is so amazed by everything. And I am now getting back into touch with my own amazement. I'm like, why didn't I spend a second looking at the tree and be like, holy shit, it's a tree. That is so cool. And then when you see old people you realize how much work it goes into the smallest things, like putting a, f- a spoon in a mouth. And you're like, 
I do that every day. I need to sit here and say, it is amazing that I can do this, that the food can enter my mouth and that I can taste. And that's why intergenerational community is the antidote to all of this. All of the ideas that I have are because I've spent so much time with my grandparents when they were dying. And that's something that so many queer and trans kids, once again, don't get to experience. When we're cut out of our families, we're cut out of intergenerational grief ritual, we're cut out of that human need to actually learn from our elders to bestow to the next generation. And that's what's being interrupted right now when they're trying to pass laws in Texas they're trying to pass a law that will criminalize drag in the state of Texas by saying that if you allow drag to happen, your business is a sexually oriented business. And if there are minors that could at all be in your business, then you'll get fine and penalties. They're defining drag as wearing anything that's not consistent with the gender you're assigned at birth. So all trans people are in drag by the law. So it's part of actually saying that you can't have trans people at all near schools. You can't have trans people at all near any places where children frequent. And I'm looking at this and I'm like, the pain that this is going to cause when we're talking about rippling for generations, because I grew up with a lesbian aunt who introduced me to gay and lesbian adults and it saved my life. And so I'm really feeling triggered now because I'm like, we need this so badly. We need to know that we're possible. Thank you so much for spending time with me. Anything I can do for you. Don't hesitate. I'll shoot you an email about a little podcast setup you might be able to make. Yeah. I mean, a good a good one is I always say to my allies, I don't need love and light. I need love and good lighting. So if you could send me some of those links. Good lighting. Good lighting is the key. I'm like really old, but if I put it right, the shadows are perfect. It's Incredible. Truly, you are uh, the best Zoom window I've ever seen in my life. I'm at your service. <laughs> that was Alok Vad Menon. Whatever you do, get their book. It's called Beyond the Gender Binary. Uh, you can get it on ebook. You can get it in hard copy. I've got a hard copy. I've read it twice back to back in a row. I did it twice in the same day. Just get it, read the book, pass it on. It's a book that should be absolutely required reading. Get it for the young people in your life. It's fucking game changing and it's super, super, super important to read. Change the way that I not only look at other people in, in, in the world, but also look at the world because I can see how my, it's like uh, if you've got an SLR camera and you can change your lenses on it, I was only given the straight white man lens. And it's taken me a lot to understand that even though I see things in front of me, I'm looking at it through this lens. And it's only in recent years, uh, you know, I'm happy to admit that I understand this now. It's only in recent years, uh, the last decade or so, that I can fathom that and It's exciting, though, because it means there's so much more of the world that I get to see and look at now because I'm able to try to step to a little bit of a side and look at a different angle. And um, I have to thank people like Alok for teaching me these things. Uh, If you like the show, if you didn't like the show, whatever, let me know. I'd love to hear from you. Send us your email at gmail.com. The Discord uh, server is, is going great. You can find the link to that in the show notes. And come along. I'll be back here Friday morning with a new podcast and come see us Friday night at the Factory Theatre in Sydney. Get your tickets for the Melbourne shows. You're amazing. Thank you so much to Andy Ma for post-production on this show. Thank you very much to Bree Steele for research and support with the Loke Toehider who made all the music and Rachel Barrett who's been fantastic in helping me facilitate all these shows and, and making these podcasts and everything. I'll see you Wednesday and Friday. Okay. <laughs> Gotta get out of here. Have a great week. Love you. Bye.